following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, uh, good morning. If you have your Bible, open up to the book of Jonah. It is going to be before Matthew, after Ezekiel, Daniel, and you got about 10 minutes to look for it, so you'll be fine. Uh, if you uh, were at the pool hop yesterday, uh, it was amazing. If you didn't go, you missed out. Thank you to everyone who hosted. Uh, it was a great time. It was a perfect day because it was so hot, and as my uh, family can attest, I need things like pools to keep me um, sane when the heat is on, uh, because uh, I am not made for Southern California. Uh, I, when we hit August, September every year, I am led to believe that God did not intend for people to live here, uh, that the weather exceeding 100 is just not, uh, it's like a prelude to hell. It's not any sort of taste of heaven, despite what some of you think. Uh, so I, as you can tell, hate the heat. I literally, in August and September, begin to think about where else could I live uh, and how can I get there. Uh, what keeps me here year after year is the church. There's no way uh, that I would leave the church. But if you're ever interested in all moving together as a unit somewhere else, I just want to plant that seed that it would be a possibility. Um, I can fight through pain and sickness. I have had uh, I won't say who, this is long ago, people for dinner. I was not feeling well. I got up, went to the other side of the house, house vomited, came back, joined dinner like nothing happened. I can go through pain and sickness pretty well without complaint. When heat comes, you hear it from me. Uh, I, I hate the heat. I complain about it. And um, I don't know what that thing is for you, but it, it feels like we all have something that just grinds on us a little bit that we complain about. We, we learn how to complain at an early age. I don't think it's taught. Uh, maybe it's picked up on, but we seem to do it naturally. You hear it most often in the car from your children as they somehow miraculously learn the art of whining, uh, something that we never teach them, but that they somehow pick up on. And I won't do the voice, but you know it if you're a parent. Uh, the, the whiny, grating voice that just gets on your last nerve. And it could be about like the cracker that their brother took, right? In the car that they treasured or, you know, my sister's breathing my air. What, whatever the complaint is, like there's just something that gets us. And as we get older, we learn to tone it down the pitch and to disguise it. And to, to celebrate our complaints, like it's a new record. I got 26 mosquito bites today, right? Like there's, there's ways we learn to cloak our complaints. I'm so glad you got to go out with your friends. I just stayed home and cleaned the house by myself, right? Like there's ways, things we say that are complaints, but worse, more subtle than the kids whine. We all are complainers. We each have a little bit of an Eeyore in us. Uh, you agree with this? Like, this is just our nature. We see it in Israel. They're going through the wilderness, and they're known for their grumbling and complaining. And it seems like the, the longer you walk with God as a question, or the longer you walk with God as a Christian, the more sometimes you will find yourself beginning to question, why is God allowing this to happen? That complaining ends up with you 
wondering about the wisdom and the plan of God. Why is he doing this? Why is he allowing this to happen? How in the world did I marry such a fool and a drunk? Why is my adult child so cruel with their words? Why am I still single when I want to be married? Why do I have to live in California when I don't want to be here? That's not me. Uh, We grow angry with God because His ways don't really seem best to us in our eyes. Right, and we don't we don't understand it. We say, "Why would you let my husband have cancer? You know we need him, right? Why is my kid in the hospital because of what this other person did? That's not fair." We let our our feelings and our perspective on things determine how we feel and how we act, and we justify it because we think. God would never ask me to do this. This can't be right. We are prone to complaining and and honestly sometimes to questioning God about what he's doing. It's really common, way more than we'd want to admit. The decisions God makes doesn't always seem best to us. Say like, I can't believe they hired that guy at work. Why is this bill coming now? Money is already tight. Right? I can't believe how hot it is. Like we, we just question God in all kinds of ways. And every time we make a complaint like that, we're asking, why is God allowing this to happen? How circumstances hit us often determines our attitude. It determines how we feel about things, whether we're slightly unhappy, visibly upset. Our frustration is often traced back to really... This, this questioning the wisdom or the will of God. We can be unhappy with God for making us give something up, unhappy with God for how circumstances out of our control are happening and really impacting our own hearts and lives. And at the root of all of it, it means we are unhappy with God for acting according to His will rather than our will. That's frequently the root of complaining. And in essence, it just simply means we're a lot like Jonah. That, that's the prophet we're looking at today. Jonah is like the anti-Isaiah. You remember last week, we, we'd heard Isaiah uh, from Sean, did a great job, talked about Isaiah's sight of God's holiness and his response, here I am, send me, Lord. Jonah is, send somebody else, Lord, I ain't going. Like, he's, he's the opposite. He, he has no feeling of Isaiah here. And we are going to the very last chapter of Jonah today, to chapter 4. So you just want to open up right there. And I'm going to catch you up to speed. I know you probably, at some point, whether from VeggieTales or Sunday School or re- your own reading, you've heard the, the story of Jonah. But just to, to set a little bit back into your mind, Jonah is a prophet. Ooh, ooh. No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> He really never got it. So that's another story. Uh, Jonah is from Galilee, same as Jesus. He's actually from a town very close to Nazareth, Uh, very, very similar. He ministered before Amos, or just before Amos, before exile, in a time when northern Israel, which is where he lived, super prosperous, really at peace across the land. They had this long reign of prosperity, and he uh, just was in a country that was enjoying that. Now, religiously, they were idolatrous. There was no justice in the land. There was a lot of problems. But from the outside, from ease and comfort, super high. 
He was a prophet to northern Israel. There's a, a little bit of a mention of him in the Bible about that. But what he's known for, and what most all the narrative is about, all the mention of Jonah, is his ministry to Nineveh, a, a, the capital of Assyria. Now, he, Assyria wasn't yet uh, ruling the world, but they were already known for their cruelty. They were historically the nemesis, the, the uh, enemy, the foe of Israel. And they were, they were bad people. They, uh, they were, as I said, known for cruelty. They invented many of the worst forms of torture and death. Crucifixion was theirs. Many, many of them, that, like I could start going and it would just turn really dark. So I would just say like archaeologists have found many evidences both in writing and in carvings of their cruelty to their captors. They sought to rule over others by um, really fear. Uh, because they were so evil towards others. And so, Jonah, in chapter 1, gets the call to go to Nineveh to call them to repent, to call the Assyrians to repent. Jonah's response is, yeah, no. And so he goes to the, to the docks, and he takes a boat the exact opposite direction. Uh, Nineveh is to the northeast, he goes to the west. He seeks to go to Tarshish as far away as he can. He gets on a boat. He, he huddles down and goes to bed. And uh, as you know from the story, he, the ship sets sail. Uh, I want to just say a three-hour cruise, but that's not it. Uh, they're, they're going further out, and they hit a massive storm. It's an amazing storm, something unlike the sailors have ever seen. They fear for their lives. They threw out the cargo, which is their own livelihood, what they would have made money from. They're genuinely afraid. Uh, when they continue to make no progress, they begin to cast lots. They, they, the lot settles with Jonah, and they determine that he is the one for whom the storm has caused, but they still don't do away with him. They fight on until they are at fear that the whole ship is going to come apart. And at that point, Jonah says, just throw me overboard. And they pray to Jonah's God and ask forgiveness and then cast him over. And at that point, he goes down and deep uh, and they know no more of Jonah. To their mind, he's dead, but the storm immediately abates. Now we know as you move into chapter 2 that Jonah sank down deep, that he was at the end of his breath, he thought he was at the end of his life, and a giant fish swallows him up. Don't know if it was a whale, don't know what kind of fish, the text doesn't say. But a large fish comes and swallows him. Now, if it were me, I think at that point I would repent, but not Jonah. Uh, the, the Jonah chapter 2 says that he was actually three days and three nights in the fish before he prays to God and repents. This is a stubborn man. Can we agree with this? Like, the, the, he, he is in not in a good place. Uh, he is eventually repentant and he prays and God commands then the fish to spit him out onto dry land. God, again, you would think at that, that point, like you don't need to be told twice, but he again, God, the word of God comes to, to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. This time Jonah says, okay. And so uh, he heads out uh, and he goes a few hundred miles east to Nineveh. Uh, until he arrives there. Nineveh, the capital of Syria, one of the largest cities of the time, the text says it was a three days walk just to get through the city, which means it's miles and miles across, which is massive for that era. And on the first day, he walks through it, chapter 3, and he cries out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the response is like nothing he has ever seen. 
and the, really the response is unlike almost anything else in the Bible. Because Israel has had the best of the prophets. They've had Elijah, they've had Elijah, Elisha, they've had Isaiah. They've had so many good prophets. There's nothing that records repentance like what happens in Nineveh with the smallest of sermons that he gives. Five words in the original, about seven in English. And he just says, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Three days walk on the first day the city is in, in disarray. They're in sackcloth and ashes. They're, they're weeping. They're pry, crying out. They're praying. They've already begun to fast. The king himself hears of it and is broken. Now, for sure, uh, Nineveh, was a worshiper of Dagon, who was the father of Baal, uh, a false god. And But you, you find, archaeologists have found a lot of evidences of Dagon being the god they worshipped, who which was half man, half fish. I was like, just think merman. And uh, that, that's kind of what you got right there. Bottom half's a fish. Sometimes you'll have like a fish head on his head, kind of entertaining. Uh, but uh, they definitely were primed hearing... Probably not from Jonah, but from people who would have been at the shore who were also worshippers of Dagon, about this guy who came to shore, spit out from a fish, seeing the physical evidences of, of the fish on Jonah, all of those things. They were, they were primed for it. But on the very first day, Nineveh, the whole city, repents. The text says they believe in Jonah, they believe in God. There's sackcloth and ashes, there's fasting, everyone is mourning, and the king implores all of his subjects, listen, turn from your wickedness, turn from your violence, and cry out to God, and maybe he will relent on the judgment that's coming. And God does just that very thing, to the extreme pain and anger of Jonah. Jonah has preached, he's had one of the most fruitful ministries of any prophet of God The city of Nineveh has repented, and Jonah, he is angry about it. And that's where chapter 3 ends, and chapter 4 begins where we are. So look in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll just start right there at the the close of it. After they've repented, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he didn't do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, was, this not, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. But I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you, not, do you have good reason to be angry? You would think, at the fruit of his ministry, Jonah would be amazed and joyful at the grace of God, And he knows the grace of God because what he does here, and you can see it, it's in your notes, he's literally quoting Exodus chapter 34. Like He's saying the exact same thing as Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when the glory of God passes by Moses, God declares this about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions and sin. Jonah knows God's words, knows who God is, knows his compassion. He says, 
I, I knew you would do this. But he says it not with joy, but with anger. I knew you would act this way. You're the God of Israel. You're compassionate. And these people, I know them better than you. They are not deserving of compassion. I know who you are. I knew what you would do. And I knew it was wrong. So I fled. Why did you let this happen? These people deserve your judgment. God, what you did is not best. Now, he's way more explicit than we would ever feel or say, but we often feel this way. We often think this way. Why would you let this happen? Jonah justifies himself, his actions, his feelings. And this is really our starting point. In the book of Jonah, chapter 4, we've got this angry prophet who's you're going to see is a lot like us. God's wrath is averted, and Jonah's wrath is growing higher and higher, hotter and hotter. And at this last chapter of Jonah, what I'm hoping you're going to see is that God's, you're going to see God's mercy towards Jonah's anger and our own failures. The point of chapter 4, actually, is to leave us motivated to do better than Jonah. It is not at all to, to bring guilt, but to leave us motivated to obey God more, to love God more, to be more obedient to our commission, to be more satisfied with God's ways. But the first thing we have to see is just how, how are we like Jonah? And we just see it over and over in the text. So number one, how are we like Jonah? We, we see in verses one to four that Jonah thought he was better. Jonah thought he was better. You say, better than who? Better than the Ninevites for sure, but also even better than God. You, we see this in verses 1 through 4, but especially in verses 1 to 2, where it seems that he's forgotten God's mercy to himself. Because you know, and you would think he would know, this lifelong memory is definitely never going to leave you that you were thrown out of a ship, sank to where you thought you were going to drown, and then were swallowed by a fish for three days and spit out on the ground. Like, that's not a memory that passes quickly, right? That one's going to stick with you. Whether it was an attempted suicide or he knew from God that that was what he was supposed to do, we don't know. But he had experienced the ultimate mercy from God. God had brought Jonah to repentance over his disobedience. God had shown mercy to Jonah by preserving his life, setting him free from the fish. For sure, Jonah bore the marks of that fish on his body. Jonah had experienced God's mercy in a way he could never forget. But when revival broke out, and when the Assyrian inhabitants of Nineveh began to repent, Jonah saw a side of God's mercy he didn't like at all. He didn't like it. The mercy of God which came to Israel should not be extended to people like this, like those who are in Nineveh. Verse 1 says it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. But more literally what it says is, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. It gets a sense of like how much he didn't like it. He was burning inside. Jonah thought he was better. He believed the Ninevites were unworthy of mercy and that he was, which is more like us sometimes than we want to admit. When we think, I don't want to talk to that person. I'm definitely not going to tell them about Christ. There's no way they would be interested. Well, why, why is she sick with cancer? She loves God right? You, you live that lifestyle, that, that's what's going to happen. We, we, we look at other people, 
whether our neighbor, our coworker, or a teacher, whoever it is, and we think that we're superior to them. We, we forget our own wretchedness. We look down on parents of others on the sports team, or a clerk at a store, or a leader in the church, or, or whoever, and we think that we're more deserving of God's favor than they are, and we forget that we did nothing to earn God's favor. Jonah's hostility just shows that he had forgotten God's mercy to himself. He'd completely forgotten that. He thought that the Ninevites weren't worthy of God's mercy and that he was. In fact, he was trying to help God. I was trying to flee and to save you from this. That's what he communicates. I knew you'd relent, so I ran away. I knew you'd have compassion, and I tried to prevent it. God, what you are doing is not best. He's just more explicit than we are. And so God begins to confront Jonah in verse 4. He says, do you have good reason to be angry? The implied answer is no. Right? The implied answer is, the mercy I gave to you is no more deserved than what I gave to them. Do you have good reason to be angry? It's a good question to ask ourselves when we're struggling. Jonah wasn't ready to hear it, though. Because his response is something we, many, many people do. The, the, the next way we see him respond when challenged, the, the second thing in verse 5, is that Jonah isolates himself. Right? So how are we like Jonah? Well, he isolates himself. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out from the city and he sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Now it may be that Jonah had convinced himself that He'd, he'd, I should say, he deluded himself into thinking that he'd convinced God to bring wrath. It could be that he thought, you know what, if I leave, they're going to quickly revert to their old ways, and then God will judge them. Whatever the motivation, Jonah pulls up stakes, and he gets out of town, and he goes up onto either a sand dune or a slight hill, a little bit east, and he seems like he's waiting for fireworks to hit. Like that, that's what's happening, because he literally goes outside town where he can look down on it and watch to see what's going to happen. Jonah is seeking separation, he's seeking isolation from those around him. It seems really likely God's intent for Jonah at this stage is that he was to stay and minister to the Ninevites, to to teach them about God and to worship the one true God. He was intended to serve as a prophet to Nineveh. Traditionally, the role of a prophet was you would foretell, you would prophesy, you would say what God directed you through divine revelation to say, and you would foretell, you would uh, encourage, you would preach, you would declare what's already known about God, you would exhort your audience in how to, what to do and how to respond. Jonah, though, doesn't do those. He, he takes the, the prophecy part in the shortest possible way, and then as soon as there's response, he gets out of town. He does the... <laughs> The minimal job. He, as soon as he's free from his obligation to obedience, he gets away, he sits, and he begins to simmer. He is doing all that he can to obey the least that he can. You know that feeling. You experience that. Whether with your kids or your own heart, you know what it means to, to try to obey in the least possible way. So Jonah preaches this really short sermon. And they still repent. Right? Now, what if I leave town quickly and I don't minister and teach them more about the Lord and His holiness, then maybe God will come and judge them and destroy them. It seems to be the heart. 
And so he gets out of town. He doesn't like what's happening. He didn't finish the work, but he chose to separate himself and to become a spectator. And honestly, one of the most common marks of someone who's in sin and unrepentant is a decision to isolate yourself from others, to to flee accountability, to flee your responsibilities, to seek isolation. When you isolate yourself, you're a lot like Jonah. I remember in the really early years of our church, uh, and when we were just a couple hundred people meeting at Bella Vista, uh, early on, there was a family there that would sit outside uh, through a lot of the worship service. We were just one service at the time. And then they would come in for the preaching. And then after the preaching, they'd just kind of sit in the back with their arms crossed. Just a little bit of a frown. Never smiled. And uh, uh, week after week, this would happen. And we say, why, why are they isolating themselves outside? What's going on? Come to find out, they really, really, really didn't like the worship, but they loved the preaching. Uh, so they would avoid the worship and kind of had a bitter face and then would come in for the preaching because that they were ministered to by that. Um, I am sure you hide it better than they did. No doubt. But we have the ability to want to isolate ourselves to sit on the sidelines, to criticize, critique, and complain, right? To separate ourselves rather than be involved in God's plan. And maybe you used to be active until you got tired, until you got hurt, until you got angry about something. Jonah's anger is just showing our subtle sins in this high-definition way. He, he shows them big. We have them, just we hide them. In the other two services today, I, not this one, but in the other two services, I'm confident that there are people who show up every Sunday, who sit in the chairs, who watch the show, who sing the songs, who eat a cookie or donut outside, and then go home with as few a word spoken to other people as possible. They're seeking to be obedient and at the same time to isolate themselves. I know that's not true here, it's just the other two services. Um, <laughs> it's fine. So they're bad people. Y'all are great. Um, When we choose to isolate ourselves, to spectate, to watch, but not engage, we're acting like Jonah. And you you notice verse 5 states he's really intentional about it. When he pulls out of the city, what it says, there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it. That for himself is emphatic, it's explicit, it's showing how his heart is self-focused. In his prayer, he mentioned himself in verses 1 and 2 eight different times. Now here in verse 5, we see that same self-focus where he's building a shelter for himself. It's for him, it's for his use, it's for the purpose of being away from the Ninevites, not a place for others, a place to circle the wagons and be alone. Now you think about the response of the city, and for sure, he could have had his choice of lodgings. You need a place to stay. The king is aware of your ministry. He is going to provide you with a house. The the city, which is in turmoil and, and fearing God and listening to your message, they're going to be kind to you. They're going to have a place for you. You can go stay in the countryside. He doesn't want any of those things. He wants to be alone. He has no love for Nineveh. He is filled with Nineveh. He's filled with wrath towards them. He wants to be alone. He wants to sit by himself. He wants to grumble about life because he thinks he's better. And he wants to be separate. And we're too often like him. We also see in verse 6, the next thing, that he enjoyed physical pleasure more than spiritual good. 
Jonah enjoyed physical pleasure more than spiritual good, verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely, greatly happy about the plant. Now what's amazing, four chapters of the book of Jonah, this is the first and only thing Jonah is happy about in the whole book. Okay, There's, there's nothing else Jonah is ever happy about other than this plant right here. Is he happy about some new understanding of God? No. Is he happy about the mercy of God in his own life? No. Is he happy about being spit out by the fish that swallowed him? No. Right? Is there joy in the work God has given him to do? No. Is he excited about the spiritual response of the king? No. Is he excited about the revival of Nineveh? No. What's he excited about? A plant that's giving him shade. Verse 6 is like the foil, the opposite of verse 1, right? It shows the contrast. You have the city of Nineveh repenting. Verse 1, Jonah is greatly displeased. He's angry about it. Verse (laughs) 6, Jonah is greatly happy because I got this cool shade tree. Something's missing, right? He is sitting alone in the heat, waiting, hoping for the, the wrath of God to come on Nineveh. That's the contrast here. Jonah's greatest joy is not in the spiritual work going on, but in the physical pleasure that's only benefiting himself. He has far greater joy in this plant behind him than in the spiritual renewal that's happening in Nineveh that he could be a part of and that he was really responsible for. There is something wrong when we are more excited about the new phone, the new laptop, the new SUV, the upcoming vacation, than we are about people coming to know God or to love Him more. And no one would say this out loud or, or, or admit to hearing that, but you see these evidences of it. Hey, do you want to come to this, this Bible study? Encourage other people in their walk with God? No, it's, it's really busy right now. I can't find the time. Do you want to go to the beach? Yeah, that'd be fun. Disneyland? Definitely. Padres game? Yes. Hmm. Can you free up some time to teach a preschool class uh, and just use what you've learned from the Bible already? That is not my thing. Could you be like an assistant junior coach for your kid's soccer team? Well, I've never done it before, but sure. Hmm. Betty Lou has surgery and we need to provide some meals for her four kids, right? Could you make a meal for them? Things are just really busy right now. You want to go watch a movie? That'd be really fun. Hmm. Jonah's pleasure with this little plant for which he did nothing but provide shade should convict us. His happiness here is written to show us our sin, to show us our natural gravity towards our wrong pleasures. He looks a lot like us. And the last thing we see in the text here is verses 7 and 9. The God-ordained circumstances increase Jonah's anger. God-ordained circumstances increase Jonah's anger. In verses 7 and 9, what we see is that Jonah's anger increases as his situation goes downhill. In other words, as God brings more challenges into his life, Jonah doesn't respond with brokenness and contrition and dependence. Instead, he gets hotter and hotter. Literally. Uh, After a day of happiness with the plant, we read in verse 7 this thing. God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant and it withered. 
And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Jonah's wrath had already begun when the Ninevites repented. And now his focus shifts more and more onto himself as these littler and littler things begin to bother him. Right As God's wrath turns away, Jonah's wrath is increasing. What took first a whole city to arouse, now the smallest of things, the death of a plant, is aggravating and bringing on. You know when you're in a bad mood and like just these little things just set you off? That's what's happening with Jonah right here. He's already in a bad mood and now my plant dies. Right? <laughs> That's it. And now if it's not just the plant, now there's this hot wind. It's like, it's like the Santa Ana's. And when it's really like 100 out and the, and the wind makes it feel it's like it's 110. Like that, that's what's happening. Jonah is losing it. Like he, he can't handle it anymore. Life hadn't been great for a long time. And now it feels like instead of Nineveh getting God's wrath, I'm getting God's wrath. That God doesn't like me. I don't understand my life. I'm being the one punished. Now, in all likelihood, when the plant died, Jonah could have been like, you know, I'm going back to the city where they have air conditioning. They didn't, but it would have been nice. Like, he could, I'm going to go back to the city. At least they have cold drinks, right? Like, I'm going to go somewhere where they accept me, where I have some shade again. He doesn't want that choice. He is angry. And as the wind blows and he gets hotter and hotter, he also gets madder and madder. How do you respond when life gets sour, when nothing seems to go your way and you feel like your boss has it in for you and your coworker has cheated you, a guy cuts you off on the road, you blow a tire and you lose a 20 and your kids are arguing, your spouse isn't affectionate and your electrical bill is like a third of your paycheck and your parents are nagging you and your dog got hit and your phone was smashed and there's no food in the house, right? Like how do you respond when your life is a country song? That's the issue. So... <laughs> What do you do when God ordains circumstances? Do you respond to them with anger and hostility like Jonah? Or do you break and depend and confess and repent? It's amazing how much his anger reveals our own common sins and tendencies. Do you see yourself in Jonah? We can be a lot like him. But you got to get this. The point of the book is not at all to make you feel guilty. His goal, the, the, Jonah's goal, the, the, the book's goal, is to leave you motivated to do better than Jonah, to obey God more, to love God more, to fulfill your commission, uh, to, to do better than Jonah. While his anger shows how much we are like him, we also, at the end of the book, have God's mercy confronting our sin. So you ha how, how does God's mercy confront our sin? That's the question that verses 9 to 11 answers. And in the last verses of the book of Jonah, God argues with Jonah from the lesser to the greater to make his case, to show how his mercy is greater than us. And look at verse 9. And God speaks to Jonah. He says, then God said to Jonah, verse 9, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you didn't work, which you didn't cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. 
Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? In other words, what he says to Jonah, listen, your compassion for this little plant behind you that's dead, that vindicates my compassion on the city of Nineveh. The fact that, that you're angry and you cared about this shows that it's right for me to care about this city full of people. You cared about a plant which you did nothing for and which lived a day. How much more should I care about Nineveh, which I've watched over and seen grown, of which I know the people in it? If you care about this little plant, how can I not care about so many people? Jonah's anger is emphasizing God's mercy, right? Jonah's finding more pleasure in the plant than in the souls of those who are in Nineveh. And it's just showing us again and again, God is unlike us. He is nothing like us. Right, We often think about Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, and I, I put it in your notes. This is, this is so key. It, we read, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God has mercy on whom he chooses. We read this verse and we think, man, that is so limiting. God only saves some. He, he doesn't save everyone. He, he's limiting his mercies. And what the book of Jonah shows us is that God's mercies is far greater than ours. Because Jonah is not going to give mercy to anybody else. Right? He, he has no inclination in his heart towards mercy, towards others. God extends mercy to far more people than we ever would. His mercy is greater than ours. His wisdom is greater than ours. His decisions are greater than ours. His ways are greater than ours. All of them are better than ours. The Lord in, in uh, Psalm 135 says he does as he pleases. Everywhere. God has not done as Jonah thought best. God did what he knew was best. He resolved to save Nineveh when Jonah wouldn't have. Jonah's anger is exalting God's mercy. And the reality, all of us have felt the way Jonah does. God, what you're doing is not right. I don't understand why you would let this happen. This cannot be best. He just expresses it with more force than we would. And he goes to the point of saying, God, death to me is better than this life. Just kill me now. Take my life. And, and I know there's, there's people here who felt suicidal, for sure, those who have felt sad, who felt silent, who felt angry, questioning, depressed. All of those emotions run through us when we naturally feel that what we think is best is not what God is doing. When we don't understand that God's best is the actual best, that is our response. And like Jonah, we don't like God's ways. We're just more prone to blaming other people than the Lord. It's my kids, my husband, my job, my boss, my house. Why are these things happening? Why are they like this? Jonah 4, his anger just mirrors how, often, how we often think and how often we feel. Jonah wants to die. God hasn't done what Jonah thinks is best. And jo God uses Jonah's anger just to show how great his mercy is. And the book ends with God asking this question. Shouldn't I have compassion? Shouldn't, shouldn't I have compassion? 
And, and if you realize this is the literal end of the book, you think, this is the absolute worst movie ever. <laughs> like, if I watch this in the theater and it just goes to closing credits, I think, like, that was a bad cut. Like, somebody missed the ending. Because... Like, there's another scene to be shown that, that, like, should be here, right? Well, God's confronting Jonah. Why not show him repent? He's likely the author of the book. This is, it's a horrible ending. It, the, the hero never recovers. So why did God end the book this way? Why in the world would he leave it with this question? Here's the answer. This book is written to Israel to show God's heart and their commission. Every part of the book shows Jonah's failure, God's mercy, and God's intention to save. And the book ends intentionally with this nagging question of, well, who's going to go then? If God has this great compassion, who's going to go out? Because it's not Jonah. Who's going to get over themselves? Who's going to forsake their comforts? Who's going to trust God with what He does is best rather than what they think is best? Who's willing to put themselves out there to do that, to trust and depend on God in this way? Who will go and serve in Jonah's place? Who will go and be a faithful minister to others to whom God wants to show mercy though the world has written them off? That, that's the question the book ends with. And the answer is supposed to be Israel. It's supposed to be Judah. They're about to go into exile. They're about to be surrounded by Assyrians, Babylonians, Chaldeans, Persians, Medes, eventually the Romans. They were supposed to be the answer. God's heart was for Israel to go. That was the, the, the promise in, to, given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. That's the declaration of Psalm 145. That's the thing Solomon prays for, the inauguration of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. God's heart is for Israel to go. But in exile, they mourn, they stay separate, they continue to feel that they're better than others as God's chosen people. Are they God's chosen people? Yes, God's chosen to go out. And so when God asks, who will go and care for these people? The answer is supposed to be Israel. They don't do it. And we see as we continue to read the Bible that the answer becomes Jesus. He is the one who comes and lives among the Jews. He is the one who ministers to the stiff-necked people. He's the one who goes and brings salvation to a Samaritan woman, to a centurion. He is the one who, uh, about whom Simeon would say that he's intended to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's the one who said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Uh, I must bring them also. He is the one who would die on the cross, bearing the sins for those in Nineveh who genuinely believed in God and had faith. He is the one who fulfilled the lingering question of Jonah. And at his resurrection, he commissions us as believers to go in his place, to be his ambassadors, to ultimately fulfill the question that the book of Jonah asks, to go to cities like Nineveh and Los Angeles and Irvine and San Diego and Wildemar and Menifee and even Hemet, uh, to, to go out and minister. That's why God ends the book of Jonah the way he does. The book of Jonah confronts us, it comforts us, and it calls us to do better than Jonah did. 
to keep moving forward in trust, to keep moving forth forward in dependence. When things hit you and you are prone to grumbling and prone to complaining, prone to questioning God, say, you know what? His ways are better. I have no right to be angry. I need to depend. I need to move forward with trust. We, I have received mercy far more than I recognize. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 say in your notes. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's us. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jonah challenges us to quit complaining, to get out there, to remember his mercy, to declare his mercy, to declare his excellence, and to surpass Jonah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief time to dive into the riches of your word and to see your prophet. And what a unique prophet he is, his rich ministry, despite himself. Lord, we confess ourselves to be no better than him. In fact, surprisingly alike to him in so many ways. But your use of him gives us hope that you will also use us. We know your mercy and forgiveness more than Jonah ever acknowledged. We've seen it fulfilled through the love of your son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross for us. And now by the power of your spirit indwelling us, we're able to forsake sin, to be convicted, to be transformed, and to go forward with more hope, with assurance, with confidence in you. When we receive conviction over our complaining and our grumbling, to look ahead and to realize, I know mercy unlike anything I will ever receive on earth. That this life is just this short breath before I stand before you. Lord, help us to walk humbly to love mercy, to do justice, and to be bold witnesses for your name, declaring your excellence and greatness. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.